Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast miniseries on M&A for Registered Investment Advisors. The purpose of our podcast is to reveal what happens inside the deal room, give RIAs advice on how to succeed at M&A, and also provide real-life examples of situations and tactics so RIAs can be more equipped to win and close more deals. Today's episode is about deal readiness and origination. Joining me today for this conversation are two very special guests. Mark Tabersian, who is the former CEO of Pershing Advisor Solutions and current board member of Pathstone Family Office, and Brad Armstrong, who is a partner at private equity firm Lovell Minnick Partners. I am Harris Balch, head of M&A and Capital Strategies for Dynasty Financial Partners. And now, let's go inside the deal. The podcast is available on our website, www.dynastyfinancialpartners.com, Apple Podcasts, and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe to Inside the Deal on your favorite podcast platform or through the episode page on our website. And if you find the content useful and feel others could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. Welcome everyone to part one of our four-part mini-series, Inside the Deal. So many RIAs want to do M&A, but only a handful actually participate. And for those that do participate, only a fraction of them are successful at closing. The first part of our podcast mini-series is intended to focus on getting ready for M&A and learning how to originate opportunities. Mark, Brad, I'm very excited to kick off our podcast with you both. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Our pleasure. Mark, are you surprised to see as much RIA M&A activity that we've seen over the past year? No, not at all. I think that when we look at what's happening in the marketplace, that the uh, cycle of the business is kind of in its natural phase. Uh, while the registered investment advisory movement began with the Securities Act of 1940, the retail concept of RIA didn't exist until about 30 years ago uh, when there was a major transformation in the business. And so what we're seeing today is really the evolution of the business and the profession uh, to where uh, the first generation of RIA owners is passing, second generation is gaining control. We've moved from lifestyle practices to businesses to enterprises. And so in many ways, what we're seeing is maturing of the profession, much like we see the transformation of other industries that go from lifestyle practices to businesses. And Brad, given Mark's comments around the cycle of the RIA, do you find that RIAs continue to be an attractive investment opportunity? We do. And um, it's for a number of reasons. Uh, I'd start by saying uh, we agree with Mark's view of some of the maturation of the industry and, and have uh, long commented that succession planning uh, was and would continue to be the, the primary driver to M&A activity. But at the end of the day, we're buyers of businesses and we want to acquire businesses where our counterparty is, is still very much in a buyer mentality. And uh, part of what we we find attractive is that you have the, in many cases, the next generation of talent that's uh, anxious to continue driving the business, uh, but doesn't have the capital personally to reach a fair and reasonable outcome for the first generation. And that's what I think one reason why you see the influx of, of outside capital, it's to help bridge that capital gap between the parties. But there's some very attractive aspects 
of the independent advice uh, space. Um, you know, clearly there's a lot of demographic demand you have uh, for financial advice uh, given uh, retiring baby boomers. You've got um, volatile markets and a demand for that that advice and, and planning-based solutions. Uh, you've got uh, a strong recurring revenue stream that's, I think, proven to be very resilient, even in some volatile markets. Last year was a great uh, demonstration of that. And then finally, this consolidation activity provides not just a need for capital, but uh, but but also you know, some of the benefits of scale uh, and some accretion in, in value as you see larger platforms uh, get created. So uh, it's been a very attractive area for uh, firms like ours to invest. There are thousands and thousands of independent financial advisor firms out there. And, you know, this consolidation theme is something that's been spoken about over the past several years. Do you suspect that it will persist? And if you agree that it will, you know, how long do you think that it will persist? Mark, what's your view? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, The first thought is that virtually every RIA is a small business. And so none of them are yet at critical mass. Critical mass is where there is redundancy at every position. There is growth greater than the GDP, uh, that you have uh, key positions that are filled, and that the business is uh, seeing uh, organic growth, not just market lift. And so uh, I think that we'll continue to see this need for, uh, for advisory firms that are achieving critical mass, not just on a national scale, but on a local and regional scale that is a driver. Uh, I think the second thing that is occurring is really what Brad talked about, is the notion that uh, advisory firms, uh, ironically, considering what they do for a living, have actually done a very poor job of succession planning. Uh, Had they executed well on succession plans, they would have uh, created a buy-in strategy much like exists within professional firms like accounting or law uh, long before this liquidity event uh, was required. And so I think that will continue to be a pressure that's on the market. Uh, The third element is that uh, even though uh, revenue has continued to increase and profitability has continued to increase, the independent advisor is really the only segment of the market that hasn't experienced margin compression. Uh, The custodians have experienced margin compression. The product providers have uh, experienced margin compression. So ultimately, what we'll see is this uh, squeeze on the advisory firms themselves from the top, and we'll see the squeeze from the bottom as the talent shortage becomes more acute and the cost of running these businesses becomes more of a challenge. And so uh, economics, probably more than continuity or liquidity, uh, will uh, in, eventually invite more consolidation of the business, transforming these lifestyle practices Uh, to real businesses becomes a a true focus in that case. Well, that really begs the question on on whether or not scale really matters. Brad, in your opinion, what are some of the common traits that you see in firms that win and lose at M&A? One of the things that uh, really comes to mind is that the winners, I think, will will be the firms that have scale and find ways to to still feel small and local but be big and, and well-resourced. Um, I don't think it's uh, a case here where um, where that comes to the detriment of, of clients. I, I think very much the contrary, uh, whether it's uh, access to investment product, whether it's depth of talent and, and continuity of, of, of the experience for 
uh, for, for clients, I think, um, you know, we're, we're ultimately driving down costs. I think there's, there's a lot of benefit to, to clients that comes with that gradual, you know, scale that's built in the industry. If, if indeed this consolidation activity continues the, you know, the losers, I think, um, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's many of the comments, Mark, you just shared, uh, I think, you know, the losers will be the firms that, 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 that hold on too long and, and, and fail to create, significant transferable value and, and you know what we've seen and we've already seen instances of it um you know usually where it happens there's too much concentration of the business either in a few clients or more likely in a in a few advisors or a few shareholders and and that latter piece is uh, is a delicate balance you see some founders that um are intent on uh you know on on retaining too much of the equity and that equity opportunity not extending to, you know, to next generation talent in the firm, and so you know they they oftentimes end up they they end up owning a lot of something that's not worth that much, uh, and um, you know the the inverse you know it ends up working out better. Uh, you know, owning a little bit less is something that turns out to have a lot of transactable value. So I think the, I think the losers will be, you know, the firms that just hold on too long, uh, don't, don't get to guide or dictate their own succession plan, uh, or, uh, you know, or don't build enough depth in the organization to really to have transferable value. Thanks. Yeah. Harris, if I could just jump on that, I think, I think what Brad is saying is really critical part of this discussion because one of the unfortunate aspects of this hot market is that, uh, the people believe that you can't lose in this process. Uh, but it's not unlike saying you can't lose by buying GameStop. Uh, you can't lose by leveraging Robinhood. And the notion here is that, uh, that there are so many firms that are caught up in the frenzy of the marketplace and believe that the reported multiples that are being paid, uh, that we read in the press are actually what the terms are. And I think that they're tending to forget that value is a function of the future. And so if there's not growth, if there's not profitability, and if there's not the management of risk or uncertainty, then those values won't hold true going forward. I think that's a fair point. I mean, a lot of what I'm seeing out there is that folks read headline multiples. And and while they look big, what a lot of people don't really understand or appreciate is that a lot of them are really protected with a thoughtful structure. And so when you think about that in the context of maybe going back to basics and, and thinking about the importance of becoming deal ready. I mean, look, both you, Mark and Brad have had the ability to consult with, invest in and advise multiple RIAs in M&A over the course of the years. And so maybe, Mark, in, in your opinion, what, what distinguishes one RIA from the other when it comes to being deal ready? Well, there are several things that I think make them deal ready. And that, that's a really critical term because uh, I think if you're motivated to sell, you're already deal ready. Uh, the question is whether you'll get the optimal price and terms that you want. So if deal ready means that you're packaged up and that you'll be able to optimize value, then there are several things that have to take place. The first is that uh, you have a, a clear strategy that you can articulate. So what's that unique proposition that is compelling to the marketplace? If you're positioned as a multifamily office, as an example, then that narrows your focus uh, to firms that are ready to buy your type of business. If you're focused on the mass affluent, then that's going to be attractive to a different kind of buyer. 
So being clear on articulating who your optimal client is and how you can demonstrate that is critical. Uh, the second is that you have a structure in place that uh, that shows the business can continue uh, even after the principal or principals are gone. And uh, Brad really made this point uh, in his comments earlier, is that uh, if the business is not sustainable, then that becomes a real challenge in terms of that optimal value. And a big part of that, the third element that I would say is whether uh, you're showing a, a client base that actually has some legs left to it as well. Unfortunately, with lifestyle practices, uh, the clients tend to be the same age or older than the principals of the firm. And so buyers are always wary of acquiring a depleted oil well, and they want to be conscious of the fact that the client base is not substantially in withdrawal phase, but more in accumulation phase. And so uh, that balance is key. And a big part of making that key is having the right talent base in, uh, in place. So is it diverse talent? Is it generationally younger than you? Are they well-trained? Are they well-developed? That becomes key. And then the final element that I would say is, uh, are they demonstrating consistent profitability after fair compensation to the principals? Uh, because this notion of value is not based on gross, it's based on net. And if the cash don't flow, the deal don't go. It's a pretty simple formula that you think about. In 2020, RIAs represented over a third of all M&A activity. Now, those RIAs could have been independent RIAs. Those could have been RIAs that were affiliated with larger firms. They could have been invested in by private equity or family offices. Brad, in your opinion, does that fact suggest that the best buyers of RIAs are truly other RIAs? Or when you think about the whole scaling dynamic that's going on and the consolidation that's going on in the space, you know that there are multiple types of buyers that will be successful in acquiring other RIAs? Well, I think it's very much the latter. I think that um, you know, what, what's happened here is that uh, th there are different types of capital partners and financing solutions and, and that, th that have uh, developed and, and continue to develop. And so uh, there's an ever-increasing menu of options for, for RAs, depending on what's the right fit for, the, for their business, for their their principles uh, and and aligning those goals with with that of their uh, with that of, of their capital partner. Mark, there are many different types of RIA M and A that someone can do. You can either acquire an RIA, you can talk in an advisor, you can acquire a new capability. If you're a firm out there and you're thinking about doing M and A, is there maybe an entryway into the space? Should you be thinking about you know, creating an M&A plan where maybe you're taking baby steps first by thinking about tucking in a new advisor first? Because I'm having lots of conversations with lots of firms and, and they all want to have an M&A strategy in place. And sometimes they find that the opportunity that's presented to them first is a much bigger opportunity that they otherwise you know, aren't necessarily prepared for. In, in one instance, it they came to us and they were talking about acquiring another RIA altogether, but they've never done any M&A before. And they're trying to think about, you know, what's the best approach to position themselves to be successful 
versus you know maybe just just putting that on hold and focusing in on on some early wins and maybe just tucking in a couple of advisors first to kind of build some level of confidence some level of of reps so that they can you know go on for bigger opportunities so when you kind of think about all the the wide opportunity set that an RIA can possibly undergo in order to upgrade and scale their franchise is there an appropriate path to success yeah i think there are several key things unfortunately for for many uh, advisory firms that are contemplating mergers or acquisitions, uh, like you, uh, I think both Brad and I have had hundreds of conversations with, with firms in similar positions. And many of them are like going into the bar just before closing in pursuit of relationships. And it's not quite the same. So uh, when we think about what's happening within uh, advisory firms who want to be on the buying side, is are they a financial buyer, are they a strategic buyer, uh, or are they a situational buyer? And uh, if they do make the acquisition, do they have the uh, financing ability uh, to make the acquisition? Do they have the integration ability? Uh, one of the things that I think is often overlooked is that uh, is that it's not just about uh, making the acquisition, but it's about digesting what you've acquired. And I think that there are plenty of examples of failures uh, in that regard, that the, the post-transaction is not adequately contemplated. It takes a good three years to fully integrate a firm into your business when you do it. And if you don't have the staffing to prepare for that, that's going to be a real challenge. Uh, I think, too, that um, that it's a big time consumption. And so, you know, one of the advantages of, of firms like Pathstone working with Lovell Minick is that uh, you have professional resources uh, at your side that are helping you to navigate the relationships and provide expert uh, insight and expertise where you need it. And I think for most firms that, especially for the first acquisition, you've never done it before and you don't realize how much time it sucks away from the normal course of business that you have to prepare for. So there are a lot of considerations, but like everything else, uh, you don't have to grow through acquisition. You can grow organically, uh, but the, the real question for most of these firms is whether uh, an acquisition or a merger is going to be an enhancement or an enrichment to their business or whether it's going to be a distraction. And I fear there have been too many circumstances where the latter has occurred. Mark, back to you just for one other follow-up question. How important, because I hear this all the time, how important is the technology stack when you're comparing you know, the buyer's tech stack versus the seller's, they talk about, you know, the synergies that might be available over time, transferring from one to the other. When you're kind of mapping those out, you know, how important is it to kind of evaluate that level of continuity or, or synergy, you know, post-transaction? Well, personally, uh, I don't think it's the overriding issue because uh, ultimately you want to go to uh, a technology solution that is going to provide the greatest level of efficiency and client experience that you can you can desire. The thing that sellers always have to remember is that once they sell, they're no longer in control. And and uh, I think that they have to realize that they're making two decisions. Uh, one is as a seller and one is as a buyer. And where they are as a buyer is they're saying, am I buying into a culture, into a process, into a client experience, uh, into a leadership team, into a positioning and a reputation in the marketplace? And so uh, the buyer has to evaluate whether or not they're willing to sacrifice some of the ways in which they've done business, because ultimately, 
for the acquirers of these firms, they have to find some level of synergy and efficiency and effectiveness and allowing firms to remain uh, truly independent after they've spent the money to acquire them makes no sense at all. And Harris, I'll, uh, I'll add on to that in saying that, uh, you know, as, as we've seen technology play a role in, in transactions, you know, first and foremost, I, I think it's it's on the list of motivations, but I think it's at best a distant second to, uh, to succession planning. And, and it may be further down uh, in the pecking order than that in terms of motivational forces driving uh, activity. But I think it's elevating in significance. The table stakes continue to go up. Uh, this is an industry that uh, will increasingly be both high-tech and, and high-touch. It will need to be high-touch when you're dealing with you know, most of, of, of the client universe, you know, high net worth and upwards. Uh, but um, you know, just as you've seen uh, the insurance brokerage industry increasingly uh, be disrupted and tech-enabled, and tech enabled, uh, and uh, and I've often drawn parallels between that industry and its its stage of development, probably a decade or two ahead of of the financial advice segment in terms of the consolidation trends and and many of the you know, industry structural trends. I think just as we're seeing you know, technology table stakes rising and starting to become disruptive there, uh, and and drive some real shift in the revenue model uh, where it's no longer uh, commissions, it's uh, PEPM. Uh, I think you'll see some of those same pressures, but technology, you know, coming back there, technology is something that is a is a pain point. It will be a a um, an increased pain point for a lot of smaller firms, especially recognizing that the the principals in those firms are not native technology uh, folks by background. They they like so many others came into the industry because they liked working with clients uh, and. Um, you know, somewhere along the way, you've built a, a, a successful and ever-growing business, but technology is a is a necessary evil and a growing pain point. And, and it's just another reason that I think we're going to see uh, sm smart sellers uh, also be smart buyers uh, in terms of looking who, at who they align with and what kinds of resources they avail themselves of. And 2020 was a great way uh, to remind us of some of the technology weaknesses and some of the technology needs. So let's shift gears for a second and talk about lead generation. Uh, and Brad, this one will go back to you. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to originate opportunities. You have bankers, you have brokers, you have recruiters, you have clients. When you're thinking about originating an M&A opportunity, I mean, you must see dozens and dozens of opportunities every single year. In your opinion, how do you go about finding the best quality leads and go about following up on them and executing against those leads? Well, you know, for us, we have an entire playbook around this, and it's something that uh, we spend a lot of time on with the companies that we're partnered with. Um, a few overarching thoughts. One is it does require dedicated resource, dedicated process, and, and dedicated focus. If you don't have that, it simply won't be successful. And that may mean that some of the resource exists with a, a partnering firm, an investor like like Lovell Minnick or, or another private equity firm, or it could be in-house resource and executive leadership that runs it. Um, from a sourcing perspective, the one thing I, I would challenge prospective acquirers to really consider is what's their value proposition? It's no different than, than pitching clients. 
you, you really have to ask yourself, what, what do you have to offer to a target firm? Because if the answer is simply capital, that doesn't really resonate. What strategically can you offer that's that's additive? And and let's go back to the earlier topic around you know technology or or is it around succession planning? Uh, I think the longer the the list of answers, the longer the, the list of solutions, the more that value proposition is going to resonate, and the more you're just the the the, the greater uh, your solution becomes than just money. When you're going through a process, Brad, and you're you're kind of evaluating you know, the merits of the investment. Undoubtedly, you've got to feel like there are a lot of buyers in the room. Someone told me recently for every seller of an RIA, there are probably 20 to 50 buyers that show up. So when you're kind of thinking about how you can jockey for position, you know, relative to uh, other folks that might be competing, you know, how do you try to differentiate? And, and also in your mind, when you're going through a process, what are some of the competitive forces around you that you feel like are, are there when you're trying to win? Yeah, there, there is a growing uh, universe of, of different solutions available for sellers. And you know, our, our solution is one of those. It's partnership capital. It's a, a path that enables a firm to stay independent uh, and continue to perpetuate itself. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, whether it's our firm or others, uh, th- there is a degree of self-selection here at work. Um, it's not quite, you know, 31 flavors of, of ice cream, but um, there there are several different flavors of chocolate, several different flavors of vanilla, what, and what have you. Uh, and and we are one form of of partnership capital, one one provider of partnership capital. Uh, I, I would in, yeah, I would encourage um, everyone to really look at what, what is the skill set that. Uh, that the prospective partner firm is bringing to the fold. Uh, what is the culture and philosophy of the firm that uh, they're they're paired with, and to make sure that there's alignment there. Uh, if um, you know, if it's a firm that's uh, that's seeking high cash flowing returns on their investment, uh, and your goal is to is to invest heavily in the business, you're not going to align with one another. Uh, if your your goal is uh, you know, f- full independence uh, and it's a an, an integration oriented but but perhaps value maximizing acquirer, again you're you're not going to align with one another. And so I think it's very important as you're thinking through whether it's you know 20 or or, or 50 to use your numbers uh, acquirers out there, um, they're going to be different styles, and it's really important to make sure that people's goals align or the marriage is not going to be successful. Are there any usual suspects that you see time and time again show up, whether it's firms or, or buyer type? There are. Uh, there are some firms like ours that I think are long established uh, in having invested in, in the financial advice space and, and have a very nuanced view of the industry, you know, extensive set of, of relationships uh, and, and resources. But th- there are also a lot of uh, new entrants as well. In my mind, I think it warrants maybe a layer of caution around uh, new entrants. They're, they're less referenceable. Um, they may not have as uh, as deep a conviction uh, through through a closing process or or beyond, and and they become a little less uh, less referenceable. And so, um, yeah, I think again, it comes back to you know, really being thoughtful about who your counterparty is. Uh, you know, one of the things we've 
prided ourselves on is, is just domain expertise uh, and uh, brand and reputation. Uh, it takes a long time to build that. Uh, and it's something we're, we're very proud of. One point that I wanted to really hit on is, um, is what you just said, Brad, around there just being a lot of new entrants into the market. And um, those new entrants could take the form of, of a lot of different types of buyers. And so on the buy side, Mark, what are your thoughts on engaging with an outside advisor or a banker to help you with structuring an M&A deal? Or for RIAs out there that really want to have a very thoughtful M&A strategy and approach, how important is it to try to go at it on your own versus engaging with the right type of outside counsel in order to help close deals? There's a certain irony in this business that uh, the proposition is always to help individuals navigate their financial choices, uh, but uh, advisors themselves are oftentimes reluctant to hire uh, outside expertise to guide them through complex decisions. Uh, the reality is that uh, this may be the only business they ever sell in their life. It'll be the only time that they've ever experienced it. And uh, there are so many nuances to the process that they have to navigate that uh, yes, they have to give up a portion of the value in terms of fee uh, if, if the deal is successful, uh, but if they hire the right investment banker, then uh, value is going to be added to the process and that will become negligible. So I think it's uh, absolutely critical that, uh, that, the, that the sellers contemplate uh, who they're going to use as their guide through this process, uh, because it's not just about the price, it's about the terms. And Brad is exactly right. The characteristics of the of the 30 or 50 or however many different buyers are out in the market are very, including uh, a critical one, which Brad mentioned, is their commitment to the business and the space. So as an example, one of the big upticks we've seen now is the creation of SPACs, uh, the special purpose acquisition companies. And, uh, you know, that's that's about as a financial buyer as you can find is, uh, you know, here's a hot market, let's get into it and see if we can generate a return. And I think that as you contemplate this from a seller standpoint, you know, for how many years is the owner of the business who said, uh, our people are our greatest asset. But when it comes to selling this, this business, we don't really care about that if we get the maximum price. So, uh, you know, you always want to know uh, at their core where that conviction and belief sits, both from the buyer and seller standpoint. What about having a buy side advisor? I mean, there are a lot of RIAs out there that I've spoken with who want to participate in M&A. But as you think about, you know, deal readiness and, and maybe being a virgin to a, an M&A process, um, you know, having an advisor to kind of professionalize their approach to getting deals done uh, is, is something that, you know, we've, we've talked about internally a lot at, at Dynasty and is certainly something that, you know, we think has been helpful to help create a structure and approach to success. So what are your thoughts on that? Because it's very easy on the sell side to make the case that, um, you know, an advisor makes sense. It's going to be negligible because they're going to be creating value. But what about on the buy side? Because, you know, a lot of times RIAs that, that want to do things inorganic need more help than just being involved in a process. I think the same principle applies, uh, especially if you have no experience with it. But all you have to do is take a look at a, uh, example of a purchase document and see all the layers and nuances that are involved in the acquisition. And you can realize that you're way over your head right from the beginning. 
even with good legal counsel, there are many nuances. And one example of this that I often find, especially for buyers who are not truly committed to the RIA space, is even their understanding of the language of what an RIA is versus a brokerage firm is a critical uh, piece of the discussion. But to me, uh, a key element of the acquisition is how you structure the deal, not just how you apply the multiple. And so they may have a CFA who can apply a discounted cash flow and come up with a price, but that is not the deal. There is much more to the process uh, than uh, just the price, and maybe even the price is not right. So uh, I think uh, I would just use the same principle that you use in saying to clients uh, that the reason you need a professional advisor is this. That same principle applies to you no matter how smart you are, because even if you have a level of experience, your level of emotion is also untested in this circumstance. That's a very fair point and certainly something that you see on both the buy side and the sell side. Yeah, I, I can tell you an example of that uh, where uh, it was a number of years ago where there were five partners. They built up a successful firm and the founding partner, the oldest of them, uh, was ready to leave. And so they all decided to sell together. And they came right down to the final strokes and how they were uh, about to do the deal. And the original founder got quite upset because the brand new coffee machine that they bought for the business wasn't included in the deal. And so there's no way that that was a rational discussion. It was like, how do I throw some nails under the tires to slow this thing down? And Mark, just building on that, I think that's where the role of an advisor, either sell side or, or buy side, can be so helpful in uh, having not just a river guide uh, for navigating deal terms and deal process, but for having additional resource. Because the, these are major projects. It's a big lift to go through due diligence, to go through reverse due diligence. And finally, to have an intermediary and you know, an agent that um, you know sometimes can be uh, you know, go through layer uh, and remove some of the emotion from what can be a you know, very delicate subject matter, not just between buyer and seller, but sometimes between sellers or between buyers. Brad, at what point during the M and A process do you think lining up third party financing should become available? I think the way it works best uh, is where it's already there. Uh, and I would look at partnerships we've had with the firms we've been invested in because um, because we've aligned around a goal from the outset and we're looking strategically to acquire other companies you know, with one of our businesses. And so the financing is, is already in place, not just on the equity side, but usually we've got we've got a, a plan in place on, on the debt as well. And so the very best approach is one in, in which it's already embedded. But where that's not the case, and that often uh, is, is the circumstance where it's not in, in uh, already in place, in the best approach, you've at least had some historical dialogue and there's a pre-existing relationship and it greatly help, it, it will greatly help in accelerating the, um, you know, the, the, the process because for a new uh, investor or a new lender, uh, either type of financing source, there becomes two layers of due diligence, almost three. They've got to due diligence you as an acquirer. They've got to due diligence the target. And then they've, they've got to do uh, due diligence on, on the combination. And so if you can take one layer out of that uh, and, and accomplish that uh, really before the M&A process starts, if they're familiar with you and have established that relationship, 
it it takes uh, it takes at least one link out of the um, out of their their further evaluation and avoids further lengthening the process. There are so many M and A experience levels across the RIA landscape, but very few of them have seen or participated in the number of deals you both have seen in your careers. Mark, any final thoughts or takeaways for the audience? Yes, I think that there are a couple of things, uh, whether you're a buyer or a seller, that uh, become quite clear. Uh, one is uh, actually to use Brad's term is to have some sort of a, a, a guidebook, a playbook that says, uh, how are you going to enter into this? And I think you have to be uh, anticipating uh, what the process is going to be, uh, not just the search process or the execution process, but the implementation process following that, that you you need to be conscious of. Uh, two, if you're on the seller's side, I think that it's a good time to think about building value, not just realizing value. That uh, you may be five years or more away from an actual transaction. So this is an opportunity to think about what are the forces that will create this enduring business that will help you to realize value uh, going forward. And this, this sharpens your proposition. Probably something you should be doing anyhow in the course of running a business, but it's certainly something that you have to be thinking about. Uh, third is uh, be conscious of the fact that uh, if you have employees, they have choices. And uh, and if they're not willing to stay with the deal, this could have a material impact ultimately uh, on the transaction. Uh, but uh, to the extent that you show them the trust and respect uh, to be a part of the ownership team early, uh, this really becomes a, a big part of the selling proposition going forward. Brad, what about you? Mark, I, I really like your statement around having a plan. And uh, some of this, I think, for advisors is uh, eating your own cooking uh, and developing a financial plan for your business and then executing against it. And the, the best made plans get well in front of this. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, the, I, I truly have seen and, and believe the value maximizing approach uh, is one in which uh, you, you're sharing in, in the opportunity and you're ultimately attracting a new partner who sees you still as a net buyer. Uh, and that may that may not be because you as the principal are a net buyer, but it means that your next generation is a net buyer. And, and in almost all circumstances, whether it's a financial uh, investor or a strategic investor, that is the value maximizing approach. But that means starting at the end and walking back years, you know, five plus years, to make sure you have the right depth chart in the organization, uh, the right process and dependencies in place. Uh, I've often likened this to um, you think about uh, you know, the neighborhood real estate agent you know, and how much transactable value exists in his or her business. Uh, and the reality is, uh, if it's a freestanding agent, probably little or none. Uh, and so build up from there. Ask yourself the question. How long can you afford to go on vacation and how long will the business run uninterrupted while you're gone? And I think the longer the uh, the time period uh, in the answer to that question, the more transactable value you have and the better made plan uh, that you have for getting yourself to a successful result. Both really good conclusions to our first part of our podcast mini series. Mark, Brad, on behalf of myself, Dynasty Financial Partners, and everyone listening, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to kick off our M&A podcast miniseries with us. To all of our listeners, thank you all for joining us. 
I encourage you to visit us on our website at www.dynastyfinancialpartners.com to learn more about M&A, the power of independence, as well as gain access to valuable content for RIAs. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe to Inside the Deal on your favorite podcast platform or the episode page on our website. And feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions or comments. I can be reached at 516-987-9397 or by email at hbalch at dynastyfp.com. That's H-B-A-L-T-C-H at dynastyfp.com. Please note that all discussions are handled with the highest level of discretion and confidentiality. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague that might benefit from its content. Also, if you enjoyed listening to our show, please give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts. This will help other advisors know it's a podcast worth their time listening to. I'm Harris Balch, and this is Inside the Deal. We'll see you next time. Thank you.